0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Marvel Reread Club. Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. We are back. It is time for our fifth episode. We are still a little bit ahead. We've dropped the first three episodes, and we're getting more listeners every episode, which is good. I was afraid we'd get less. I listen to a podcast. I'm a completist. I listen to every episode. So I'm like, <laughs> what? but if there are more people listening to every episode, that's good. But but I don't want anybody listening to the
1: third episode who hasn't listened <laughs> to the first episode. Well, you know, it, it's, uh, it's one of those things where, you know, clearly this has a chronological order in which it makes the most sense. But- All of this stuff was, you know, how many decades ago at this point? 60 years ago? (laughs) So it's not exactly like you would uh, uh, be surprised. Oh my God, this Henry Pym guy became a superhero. (laughs) How would I... Spoiler. 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 Exactly. So uh, that happens this episode. So, you know, don't tell anybody.
0: Okay. So let's go ahead and get started with what we are doing. We've got a big day, folks. So here, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, we're going to record five issues tonight. I would not be surprised if this gets busted into two episodes because we're going to see how quickly we can get through these five issues tonight which are five of the biggest issues in Marvel history. There are some very big issues here tonight. They were all published in September of 1962 and we're just going to we're just going to handle it. So okay. uh, I
1: believe the first issue that we're going to be talking about today is Amazing Fantasy number 15. And what is important about Amazing Fantasy number 15, Matt?
0: Well, it doesn't sound like a very impressive issue. Like, what? It's just another issue of Amazing Fantasy. What's so different about that? Well, and Amazing the last Fantasy... issue. And the last and the... issue. It's about to be canceled. Yeah. It's like, we're going to cancel the book. We're going to put out one more issue. You know, why even bother? Oh, wait. We're going to go ahead and use Amazing Fantasy number 15 to introduce a character named Spider-Man. And yes. so, Amazing Fantasy number 15, introducing Spider-Man. Spider-Man, penciled by Jack Kirby on the cover and looking not very Dicko-esque, looking... A much more robust and manly Spider-Man than we would see in the comics for many years. Spider-Man says, Though the world may mock Peter Parker, the timid teenager, it will soon marvel at the awesome might of Spider-Man. Also in this
1: issue, an important
0: message to you from the editor about the new amazing.
1: Aka, we're canceled. <laughs> yeah. Well, also, they had just changed the name of the of the comic. In uh, the first fourteen issues of this, were amazing adult fantasy, uh, yes. which sounds way more inappropriate than it actually meant. It was, just, it was supposed yes. to be. They were using
0: they were mm-hmm. using the word adult differently than we would use that word in terms of comics today, and they were using the word fantasy different
1: from how we would use that word in comics today. But Absolutely.
0: Have you ever read Amazing Adult Fantasy?
1: Uh, not much. I mean, I, I've caught a story or two here. Well, let me put it this way. I read the story later in this issue. <laughs> it is it is an amazing book. It is my
0: favorite Marvel monster book. Because it wasn't really a monster book. It was called Amazing Adult Fantasy for a reason. It was their most sophisticated title. I mean, it's kind of like the Twilight Zone, began. basically, right? That's what I was going to say. It was much more of a Twilight Zone comic than it was
1: a monster comic. I'm just and here to it, step on your payoff lines. That That's all I'm here for. It very much is.
0: And... It's Dicko was clearly writing and drawing and there was very little Lee involved and they were these beautiful little twist comics. And so this was already, this book was Dicko's baby. This was the book where they specifically were saying, okay, Steve Dicko, we're going to let you do this comic. And do adult comics, do adult sophisticated comics. And then, so this issue sort of represents this tragedy in that, you know, Steve Dicko is not getting to do his amazing adult fantasy comics anymore. He's not getting to do let his freak flag fly and do these dicko esque books. And instead he has to do a boring old superhero book and they're (laughs) constraining the book. And oh, who is the Spider-Man guy? He's never going to amount to anything. And... Well, it turned out that Dicko fell in love with this as well, and he poured his heart into this issue as did Stanley. I believe that Stanley deserves a lot of credit for this issue and that I think this may be the best comic book, the best issue of a comic book Stanley ever did.
1: I, that, that's certainly you can make that argument. This is the book, this the story that gives us possibly the most famous quoted line of the entire Marvel canon, which is yes. And say it with me, everybody, with great great power power becomes um, great great responsibility. responsibility. I totally botched it, didn't I? Yes. I think uh, I did. I said becomes. (laughs) So, um, yes, one way or the other. Yes, so I I could definitely see your argument. This could possibly be the most consequential issue that Stan Lee ever wrote. Uh, Do we want to get into yet? uh the whole thing about uh why jack kirby claims credit for this before we get into talking about this this story or do we want to go? yes why don't you sum that up quickly okay so here is the story as i understand it and you know obviously i don't know any people involved but from stories that i've heard from people in the know stanley was doing all these great superhero books with jack kirby they were going great guns they were putting out all sorts of new stuff hulk Fantastic Four. They were about to do Ant-Man, which we're going to talk about later in this issue, uh, Thor. And he then said, Hey, Jack, I want to do a book about a teenage superhero. And I want him to be called Spider-Man. Now I want him to have all sorts of teenage problems in high school and stuff like that. I don't want him to be like a big superhero. So Jack went home, drew up a story, you know, just basically with that more or less as his guide and came back. And Stan Lee then And here's where some of the details get a little funky. But my understanding is that Stan gave it to Ditko to ink. And Ditko looked at the pages and then said, "Um, Stan, this is the fly. And Stan was like, wait, what? Um, Okay. uh, Hmm. Uh, All right. No. So uh, explain mm -hmm. what was the fly? The fly was a comic that uh, Jack Kirby had done with his previous primary comic collaborator named joe simon uh for i believe archie comics but it was uh, a <laughs> for some other comics company and he was a you know guy who was a fly themed superhero who had some kind of a web gun or something like that and he somehow transformed i i believe when he turned into a superhero into some other thing but it was so that's my understanding i have asked questions from people who know about these things whether these pages ever survived that would be amazing to get to see these pages. And I have heard contradictory stories about that. Most of the people say that Stan Lee just said, we'll just go ahead and keep them and do something else. And that Steve Ditko eventually destroyed them and later said that he felt guilty about doing so. That, you know, he should have, hel- have held on to them. Um, but then some people say, oh no, so-and-so claims to have actually seen these pages before and they are still out there. So. Wow. Who knows? But that is the basis on which Jack made his later claims that he created Spider Man. He's like, well, he said just make a Spider Man, and so I gave him this comic, and then he just had it redrawn by Ditko. But I mean, I did this, I did the book, so that is my understanding of where that controversy comes from. Okay, so it's not just because he did the cover. I always assumed it had something to do with him doing the cover. I, I, I mean, I, that might add into it but that's not that's not the main crux of it from my understanding okay um yeah no i mean obviously this
0: book cannot be more dicko so we should explain that every book we've talked about so far has been penciled by jack kirby most of them written by stan lee one was scripted by his brother lilyard Lieber. there was one issue of hulk we talked about that was inked by steve dicko well this comic had the normal penciler anchor and co-writer of Amazing Adult Fantasy, Steve Dicko, on it. And it is a very different book from the Jack Kirby books we have been reading. It is one of the biggest differences between Kirby and Dicko is that Dicko insisted on inking his own art. And Kirby just never really got into inking his own art. And so Kirby was very dependent on inkers. Now, we have talked about, as far as I'm concerned, Dicko inked by Dicko is one of my all-time favorite artists. Kirby, inked by certain inkers, is one of my all-time favorite artists. Kirby, inked by Sinnott, is one of my all-time favorite artists. Kirby, inked by Coletta, is not. And Ditko, I feel the same way about it. I feel like Ditko, inked by Ditko, is one of my all-time favorite artists. I could just look at a Ditko, inked by Ditko book all day long. Ditko, inked by anybody else, I'm not a big fan. And if I'm reading a comic book and it says, oh, this is an issue by Steve Dicko, inked by even, you know, a great inker like Pete Craig Russell or somebody,
1: then I'm going to be like, yeah, no, thanks. <laughs> I was just actually thinking that exact thing because I was like, oh, yeah, he drew those issues of ROM when we were reading comics. And I think P. Craig Russell inked those, didn't he? <laughs> and then you go name drop that exact thing. I'm like, yeah, you can tell that we grew up reading the same comics together, can't you? Yeah. But uh, oh. uh,
0: but this is the number one word I would associate with Dicko and the art on this book, even though this is not really the theme of this book, is noir. There is heavy uses of shadows and blacks, and there is just, this is a city that has some character to it in the way that Kirby's cities never do. Not that Kirby couldn't draw the hell out of cities. Kirby could draw the hell out of cities, and we're going to see that in the next book we do. But oh my gosh, there is so much character in Dicko's art, and this is a gorgeous book.
1: Yeah, and as I've said, I, you know, when I was a kid, when I was a kid and a teenager, uh, I would see old reprints of old Ditko comics and be like, ugh, this is so, so ugly, just, I can't, uh, I just don't have, have any interest in that. And as I got older and saw more and more of his stuff over the years, uh, I have, as I said, become utterly transfixed with him, although I'm still not necessarily a fan of the art. I'm a fan of the comics, The storytelling, Uh the whole unit, the whole thing, but the actual art itself isn't necessarily what really draws me in.
0: Uh, I I disagree. I absolutely love the art. Well, uh,
1: I don't think you can disagree, since I was just talking about how I feel about it. (laughs) That's not how I feel,
0: I will say. That's what I mean to say. I'm a huge fan of this art. I'm a huge fan of this issue.
1: So let's go ahead and get into this issue. First of all, on the splash page, I will point out that the picture of Spider-Man in the upper right-hand corner looks really spidery. (laughs) Yeah, it really does. It is is the least human.
0: It is the most inhuman that Spider-Man ever looked. The very first picture of him we get on this first page. He looks like a creepy spider creature. He looks creepy as all hell. So we begin the first page. There's a bunch of high school kids. They aren't specifically identified in this issue as Flash Thompson and Liz Allen, although we can imagine that this might be who they are eventually. One saying, say gang, we need one more for the dance. How about Peter Parker over there? And then the one who is probably Flash Thompson says, are you kidding? That bookworm wouldn't know a cha-cha from a waltz. And the one who's probably Liz Allen says, Peter Parker, he's Midtown High's only professional wallflower. And then we got to Peter, who was, of course, wearing his vest and his tie, because heaven forbid you go to high school not wearing a tie. And he is looking depressed, but he is casting a shadow behind him, which has a big spider web around it and a giant spider to show that he is about to become Spider-Man. So. Yes. One of the things that I always loved about Spider-Man growing up and eventually became not true, very very much became not true after they did One More Day, is that I like that Spider-Man moved through time. I liked that Spider-Man starts off as a kid in this issue, and he this is very much a high school book, and that they had him growing and changing over the course of the first 30 issues until he graduates from high school and he enters college. And some of his supporting cast continued on and went to college with him. And some of them did not and got dropped and, and and there, by the wayside.
1: Some, and, and there's a little bit of, uh, I don't know if controversy is really the right word, but disagreement on how much that, changing was wanted by both creators. Yes. Uh, I, I know one story that I've heard is that Steve Ditko was like, no, he's a high school he's a high school character. You know, we'll just keep him in high school. And that Stan Lee was like, no, we need, he's going to graduate. Like, he's going to go to college. He's going to do all this stuff. But I, I don't, you know, once again, that's one of those things I've just heard. Who knows? And then of course, they had him keep growing and changing and maturing and then go to graduate school and then go to
0: and then become a teacher. And then eventually they had him get married and have a kid. And that's when they just massive regretted the whole thing and they were like we should have kept him in high school what did we do what did
1: we do and-, <laughs> and, and so and so what did they do they had him make a deal with the devil to get out of his marriage yes and then they well <laughs> first they tried first they tried
0: rebooting the whole thing in high school as a separate parallel book called Dalton and spider-man but then they decided to also de-age him in the main comic and make it so that his marriage and kid had never happened so all right so this is so we see peter he's made fun of at school we see him he's much happier at home where he's lived with his old white-haired uncle ben and aunt may both of them look too old to be his aunt and uncle so then he is being picked on oh i guess they actually do call him flash thompson here on the on the second page uh, some yeah. some girl named Sally, who I don't think we ever saw again, she is making fun of him going, Peter, for the umpteenth time, you're just not my type. Not when dream boats like Flash Thompson are around. And then the character who was probably Liz Allen, they drive off without Peter, and they go, see around, bookworm. And she says, give our regards to the Atom Smashers, Peter,
1: which later <laughs> got turned into the title of a book about this era called Give Our Regards to the Atom Smashers. Now, I will point out that uh, that Pete is asking this girl, Sally, out. And uh, she's saying, Peter, for the umpteenth time, you're just not my type. It's, you know, sounds a little bit like maybe, you know, as we get longer in here and as Ditko ends up becoming more of an Ayn Rand, um, or I don't know if he becomes more, but he becomes more influenced in his storytelling by his Ayn Rand discipleship, Peter Parker can end up becoming more of a prickly sort of, goes from just a bookish, you know, oh, I feel bad for him because people you know, are mean to him to kind of a, uh, I don't know, he's kind of, you know. And right here with the whole thing about, you know, he's clearly been asking her out multiple times. And she's like, will you not take a hint? I do not want to go out with you. Which sort of almost seems like a foreshadowing. (laughs) I think that at the time that was considered to be far more socially acceptable to ask someone on dates many times. I mean, I feel like at
0: some point there's one thing that's fascinating to me in the ads for these comics is you get this gradually switch over in the ads from ads that say hey teenagers we'll help you gain weight like (laughs) you know there's an ad a bunch of ads for something called weight on where it's like this this is a product to help you gain weight and there's several of them both for girls and for boys hey girls we'll help you gain weight hey boys we'll help you gain weight and then there's a flip over to ads about losing weight and there was like one issue i noticed once where they were on facing pages gain weight and lose weight and another flip over i think that happened at some point in here is that at the time this was done there was still a thought that if you were a good girl oh, you right. went on dates with lots of boys and the sign that you were a good girl is that you didn't just go on dates with one boy you went on dates with lots of different boys and if you were a bad girl then you only went on dates with one boy well at some point that flipped
1: yeah yeah <laughs> <And, laughs> <laughs> yes, this is this is true. And this does come up from time to time later when we get into X-Men and uh, Jean will be dating, you know, all the different guys on the X-Men, basically, because she's a good girl. She's not going to go steady with somebody which had all sorts of uh, uh, implications to it. okay um, anyway back on what we're doing
0: spider so then he goes and sees a science exhibit he sees a spider that goes between two radioactive things then the spider bites him says a spider it bit me but why is it burning so why is it glowing that way my head it feels strange i need some air so he goes outside and this is just beautiful storytelling Uh, presumably from Ditko, where it goes so much quicker than it ever goes in any of the movies. He goes outside and is instantly like, what's happening to me? And then a car goes, Hong Kong and almost hits him. And he instantly leaps up, leaps much further than he thought he would and sticks to the building. So already at the bottom of page three, he's discovered his powers in a very sort of simple and organic way. He has now figured out how to get his powers.
1: Now, Matt, let me ask you a question. Once again, uh, as our listeners probably know by now, I am reading this on Marvel Unlimited, which is, you know, been recolored and is available online through subscription. Matt is reading scanned copies of the original pulp pages. On the bottom of page three, when Pete is looking at his hands, what color are his fingers? His fingertips turn yellow okay, that, that's what I'm looking at here. And I'm like, that would seem like a bizarre thing just to have as a mistake. Yeah, I don't know what that's supposed to be about. <laughs> I don't know. But then, yeah.
0: So at one point, I read various rewrites of this issue. You know, they're always like, let's retell Spider-Man's origin. And I very clearly remember that when he is climbing up the side of a building and a little kid points at him and we see just the little kid holding the hand of his mother who we don't see, I swear I remember something about her saying, I'm going to beat you when we get home or something like that. But that is not here. So I think that was in a retelling of this origin where somebody, I think, was making fun of this panel going like, "Uh, what's going to happen here? But in in the panel, the kid is pointing at Peter Parker climbing a building. He says, Mommy, look at that man walking up the side of a building. And she says, that's the last horror movie I take you to, young man. So then uh, Spider-Man climbs the building. He then crushes a pipe. When he gets to the top, he realizes he's super strong. He has already then decided upon the bottom of page four that he is going to earn some money. It says $100 to
1: the man who can stay in the ring three
0: minutes with Crusher Hogan. Now, oh, of course- which, which,
1: by the way, Crusher Hogan may- sounds like a cross between Crusher Creel, who we're going to see in future issues as the absorbing man in Thor comics, and Happy Hogan, who actually was a boxer originally. I yes. wonder. and then becomes an a
0: Iron Man sporting character. I yes. do wonder if anybody has ever gone back and said, oh, no, no, that was Happy Hogan's brother, Crusher Hogan. Yes, <laughs> that's what I was thinking. <laughs> so then Spider-Man decides to create himself. Well, at first he doesn't create a costume. This is all sort of more spread out than it has been in the movies. He at first just gets, him, gets a little mask, which looks like he may have made from webbing, which he hasn't really invented yet. But he is gone ahead, climbs in the ring with Crusher Hogan, picks him up, climbs up to the top of a pole, drops him back down, wins the money. Now, let's go and talk about the movie, because... The movie did something which took this comic, which has, you. I mean, you think it's only a 15-page comic. You would think that they would need to have a story as compressed as possible. But the movie, because the movie was essentially covering 130 issues worth of comics because <laughs> it was going to the death of Green Goblin, that they compressed this issue beautifully. And so they said, okay, this should all be one day. First, he should create the costume. Then he should get in the ring with Crusher Hogan. Then." he should, that day, they refused to pay him because he didn't actually spend enough time in the ring with Gresher Hogan. Then because they refused to pay him, he should refuse to intervene when a robber robs that box office, that box office he didn't get his part of. And then his... Uncle Ben should be waiting outside in the car to pick him up, and then that same crook should, as part of that same crime, decide to carjack that car, carjack Uncle Ben, shoot Uncle Ben, leave him there dying, and drive off. And so this entire, all of the many coincidences in this story are completely eliminated. Now everything is compressed into one incident that combines all the incidents of this story, and it is absolutely beautiful. Instead, and this is not a knock on this issue at all, but this issue, because they don't have to cram it all into one day, have all of these things happen separately. First, he beats Crusher Hogan. He presumably does get paid his money. Then he decides to, I guess, spend some of that money, creates web shooters, goes ahead, practices, makes himself a better costume. Then he gets on TV again and someone who a talent scout who had spotted him the first time now has him going on TV and just showing off his tricks on TV. Then I don't think it's even the people who he was on TV with who the robber has robbed, just someone else in the building the robber has robbed. Spider-Man then says, hey, what's going on? And the thief just goes right by him and the cop's like, what's with you, mister? All you had to do was trip him or hold him for just a minute. And Spider-Man says, sorry, pal, that's your job. I'm through being pushed around by anyone. From now on, I'll just look out for number one, and that means me. So then you get to this huge coincidence. Spider-Man is seemingly on TV again and then comes home and finds out that by a huge coincidence, that same robber who he let escape in that building has, several weeks later, seemingly, randomly robbed his house now presumably the tv studio he was in was in manhattan he lives way out in forest hills queens but that same <laughs> robber has made it all the way up to forest hills queens just like he did and has broken into his house and killed his uncle ben then spider-man tracks him down now i'd forgotten in the movie he accidentally quote unquote kills the crook and then the crook is eliminated from the story by I dying remember that he just arrests him in this in this comic, and then he does, in fact, come back. I'd forgotten yeah. this, that he arrests him, and then the the robber comes back many years later for, I think, Amazing Spider-Man number 200. And, yeah, I, I do remember that so then, he shows back up at some point, yeah. I mean, this is a classic example of what sort of coincidences a storyteller can't get away with, and what sort of coincidences a storyteller can't get away with. In this, the whole source of meaning of the story is this huge coincidence. So it's fine. Like, oh my god, what are the odds? This is fate. The fickle finger of fate has landed on me. And somehow the same person who I didn't stop has made it all the way out to Forest Hills, Queens and done a random home invasion robbery, which is, of course, you know, the great myth of crime, you know, (laughs) that you're going to have Manhattan crooks coming out and entering residential neighborhoods in Queens and doing picking out random houses for random crime and never actually happens that way. But this is this huge coincidence. And of course, when they made the movie. They were, including many years of comics, including other coincidences, including the huge coincidence that Spider-Man's friend's dad turned out to be the Green Goblin. Like, that is a huge coincidence. And I think they said, that's the only coincidence we want to have in this movie. And mm-hmm. so we have to completely rewrite Amazing Fantasy number 15 so that there is absolutely no coincidence
1: there. And they did, and they did a beautiful job. But this is also a beautiful comic. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, um, on your copy, is the spider on his back blue throughout this issue rather yes. than red? Okay, yes. yeah. So they... they, they... Clearly changed their idea on uh, on that going forward. Not not a big deal. Also, uh, on the last page in that panel in the middle row, Spider-Man has pupils in his mask eyes, which is <laughs> yes, the only the time, only ever time.
0: <laughs> I <laughs> think just to show how shocked has. he is. I think yes. they decided he just didn't look shocked enough
1: without pupils in his eyes. Yes. Yes. Uh, no, I, I, yes. But it, it does sort of jump out at you. Like, what is going on? So then, of course, at the end, uh, we have that final panel and a lean, silent figure slowly fades into the gathering darkness, aware at last that in this world with great power, there must also come great responsibility. And so a legend is born, and a new name is added to the roster of those who make the world of fantasy the most exciting realm of all. But uh, yes, that that and, last. And one. then it says, and then it says, be sure to see the next issue of Amazing Fantasy, which never came out, for the right. further amazing exploits of America's most different new teenage idol, Spider-Man. Then, in the end, this issue sold like what twice the copies of any of the previous issues of this series, and so they're like oh. Well, um, maybe we shouldn't have canceled it, and maybe this guy gets his own book now. <laughs> and I, I mean, I think that Stanley
0: loved this character more than any other character. I think certainly if you had asked him when he died, who was your favorite Marvel character, I
1: think he would have said Spider-Man. I, I will take your word for that. So, <laughs> but yeah, this this is a short story. There's not much that really. I mean, you know, it's it's a short little fable. Basically. And there's really not much to dissect here other than, you know, what you've already done about, you know, how they approach the storytelling here versus how they did in the movies. But um, I mean, you don't really need much more than this. I mean, this is a perfect little gem of an introduction for this character. And um, yeah, you can't really do much to improve it.
0: And it's a very sad story. Like, you know, you really, Dicko and Lee really make you sort of love Uncle Ben in just a few panels. And they have not done anything like this yet, really killing off a character after they make you love them. And, you know, there's not a lot of death in any of these comics. And this was a very impactful death. And then it's ironic. You know, I think that this is the most ironic story in these early years oh the irony the one the one time i could have the one person i could have stopped ends up killing my uncle and it works it works beautifully now i have a question for you yes i another big difference between this comic and the movie is that he does not have organic web shooters in the movie he has organic web shooters and in the comic he says oh i've got spider powers which is to say i have some spider powers in that i can stick to buildings and I've got super strength, which is sort of associated with spiders, but not really. But the only real spider power I have is that I can stick to buildings. And then the other big power spiders have, shooting webs, I didn't get. So I'm going to just invent web shooters, which if you're capable of inventing web shooters, then that alone means you could have been a superhero, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> even without superpowers. Now, I have always assumed, and I've never heard this confirmed, that he was originally supposed to have organic web shooters in the comics, and that somebody
1: said, that's gross. And... <laughs> I don't know. So I, you know, looking at this, I wonder if, and you know, once again, I, I overanalyze everything Ditko does. I overthink everything Ditko has done. So I'll just put that out there to be at the beginning. But once again, I'm always thinking of him in terms of his relationship to ayn Rand's philosophy, right? right. And so, as a someone who is very enamored of Rand's heroes. I think that this is an element in which he as he is self-creating. Mean, it sounds like you're saying
0: about yourself as someone who is enamored of transfer. <laughs> you're saying that <laughs> Oh boy. <laughs> as as you're saying that Steve that Dicko Steve Ditko. as someone Steve Ditko is yes. someone who is enamored of Rand's heroes.
1: Yes. Okay, go yes, on. Yes, yes. Okay, thank you. Yes. Steve Ditko, who is enamored of Rand's heroes. Uh, I get the impression that he was saying, oh, I'm going to have him invent these himself to show right. that he is a Randian type hero, a self-made person who deserves all of what will come from being a hero because he can make himself into a hero. Um, And I might be over, you know, once again, I am fully aware that I way overthink anything Ditko does usually through that lens. But right. there it is. That does totally make sense. That That is, that is sort of a Randy Nomen. And it does make him. And I think that they do
0: good stuff over the years with him having created his own web shooters. And I think it's oh, yeah. for the best. And they went ahead and reverted to him making his own web shooters in the two reboots of the movies that we've seen since. Supposedly, that was partially because of Brian Michael Bendis. Brian Michael Bendis was part of their creative trust in the early years. And they came to him and they said, like, you're writing the Ultimate Spider-Man comic. You rebooted this character. Do you think he should have organic web shooters? Because at first he was going to have organic web shooters again in the Andrew Garfield movies. Oh, really? And then Brian Rickman's like, no, it's just not the core of Spider-Man's character. The core of Spider-Man's character is that he is a scientist. He did invent these themselves. He should go ahead and do it, even though it's a little weird. <laughs> it's, it's it's a weird turn for the storytelling to take. I mean, to me, it's just weird that he didn't get all the powers of a spider. Like he got, he didn't get the big powder of a spider. And then he had to add that himself. It's weird, especially having seen the movie where it makes so much more sense to me in the movie, but it's, but it's, it's, The science element of the character they do honor as the years go on, and it is the element of the character.
1: Yeah. So, uh, by the way, I think I mentioned in an earlier episode of the podcast that the satirical newspaper The Onion put out a book right at the turn of the millennium called Our Dumb Century that was fake onion front pages as though it were an actual satirical newspaper that had existed from the beginning of the 20th century all the way to the end of the 20th century. And I cannot recommend it highly enough. It is very, very well done and entertaining. There was one article in there that is titled, Boy Bitten by Radioactive Spider Dies of Leukemia. Peter Parker, seventeen, was avid student of science, comma photography, and I won't read the whole thing here, but it does mention Empire State University as the place where he went to see the uh, the physics demonstration, which is where he eventually goes to college and graduate school, and then uh, his doctor that saw him was Henry Pym who we will be seeing later in this month. Uh, And it says he is an expert in the field of radioactive insect-induced cancers. Uh, Then I'll just skip to the end, and it just says that Parker's death marks the sixth atomic accident fatality in the last month, arriving on the heels of Reed Richards, Ben Grimm, and Susan and John Storm, all succumbing to cosmic rays during the maiden flight of Richards' experimental rocket, and U.S. Department of Defense scientist Bruce Banner's irradiation by the gamma bomb, a weapon of of his own devising. So <laughs> right. uh, I, I strongly recommend everyone pick up a copy of the onions are Dumb century. It's extremely well done.
0: Yes. Uh, one cannot,
1: <laughs> after reading that article, one
0: cannot help but think of it every time one reads these comics. Yes. I mean, I think the ultimate way we know that Stan knew he had something special here and really loved this comic is that Larry Lieber didn't write it. <laughs> it's that he didn't, he didn't have his brother Larry script it, which he was doing more at this point. And Stan wrote it himself, and I think it was glad. I think that one thing that when we misremember this issue in various ways, we remember, partially because it was in the movie, some characters saying, with great power comes great responsibility. That Uncle Ben says that in the movies, and we either remember Uncle Ben saying it or Peter saying it. But no, it's just Stan Lee who says it at the end. Stan Lee is summing up the story that way, and then it's only much later
1: that this becomes a phrase that actually gets uttered in the comics. Okay, so um, that's great. We've introduced Spider-Man. We will not see him again for a few months because, like we said, Amazing Fantasy ends up getting canceled right after this issue, and it takes him a few months to go ahead and get the new Spider-Man comic book into production. But we have gotten his introduction, and uh, it is, uh, as you said, arguably one of the most important. Uh, what one of the what best most important? What what is the word you said about uh, for that Stanley ever wrote? I think it's his greatest comic. I his think greatest it's, it's the comic greatest issue of comics he's ever done. Yep, and so uh, so that's wonderful, but now it's time to move on to the next issue of Fantastic Four. Fantastic Four number six. This is still the world's greatest comic magazine, according to the cover. Have the Fantastic Four at last met their match when the mighty Submariner and evil Dr. Doom team up? Don't miss the diabolical duo join forces. And Dr. Doom is saying, the time has come, Submariner, destroy the Fantastic Four. Mr. Fantastic, who's stretching up towards the two flying villains, says, no matter what powers you both have, we shall defeat you. The Fantastic Four, swear it. So, so we still
0: have Dr. Doom still looking very green. He's still got mm-hmm. greenish armor. Prince Namor is still in orange swim trunks. He yep. would eventually turn green and Dr. Doom would turn uh, his armor would turn gray, but so far we still have, that is still it. All right. So then we, it's funny. I think page, yeah. I think Sinat was not inking these pages in order because the first issue, the first page is actually signed by Dick Ayers. The first mention of an inker's name we get, it's got, the. it's got Dick Oh Ayers. yeah, it's, there you go. It says, yeah, I, I hadn't Dick noticed Arby. that. But I don't think this first page is inked by
1: Synodic, but the next no. page
0: clearly is. Yeah, so, and... so okay,
1: so I went and did a little bit of research on this. Uh, I know we scoffed at the idea that we would do any research on this stuff, but I I, <laughs> I went and did some research. Heaven <laughs> forbid. Uh, I actually, you know, act professional about this thing. So, um, I, I you know, I've been saying that the Marvel Unlimited says that a number of these early Fantastic Four issues were inked by someone named Christopher Rule. According to that, this issue is also inked by Christopher Rule. It's clearly wrong. And so so I looked up Christopher Rule. Apparently, he was older than most of these guys. Like he was, apparent. He actually apparently served in World War One. And oh was, my god, yeah, yeah, and was a professional illustrator and ended up falling into comics at one point. And he was, I believe, if I remember right, it said he was he was he was a regular inker of Jack Kirby's for a while. And I believe it was for a while at Marvel before all of this superhero stuff started. So I'm guessing that somebody who was putting all this information into the database that Marvel Unlimited uses must have just been like, oh, Jack Kirby, and it doesn't say anything. I'm guessing it's Christopher <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, this um, is
0: credited on MarvelFandom.com to being inked by both Dick Ayers and Joe Sinnott. Yes. Uh, clearly, the first page is by Ayers because it's signed by him. The second page, clearly by Sinnott because you can just tell from looking at anybody's face. Right. But then it's my understanding that Sinot switched over to doing religious comics halfway through inking this issue, doing the pages out of order, and then disappears for another four years, tragically. Right. And you can just tell from looking at these first two pages how much better Sinat is than Ayers. But
1: oh well. Yeah, and I, I'm, I generally like Ayers' work as an artist, but he, I believe, inked all four of the Kirby issues that came out this month, and I don't like them. Uh, I, I, I'm very disappointed by his work. As a matter of fact, you know, I don't like the inking in general that he does on these particular issues. Like I said, I like Ayers as an artist generally, but, um, it looks almost like the paper was bleeding. Like the (laughs) ink, the ink would like not stay still, but would start bleeding through the paper fibers as well as him sort of inking kind of almost like with a mop rather than a brush. Anyway. So that, that's, I was a little disappointed by that in these three issues, especially since I do generally like airs.
0: So we begin with Johnny. He's flying through the city. They go, it's the human torch heading for the Fantastic Four skyscraper headquarters. Uh, we then get to Sue. Sue is still, generally has a problem with being invisible too often and bumping into people and knocking over many people on the street. I realize New York City is a crowded city, but man, oh man, it, can she knock over a lot of people when she is invisible. But now she's beginning to get a little better. She's beginning to realize, hey, I could just be visible. And then she turns <laughs> visible. does not knock over anybody when she turns visible. It's worth noting. She then uses her special belt buckle to rise up into the headquarters what, we get, what, of the baxter building we, we yes, actually have the baxter, baxter, baxter building named and we get another cutaway view of inside the baxter building which is different from the last cutaway view we got of inside the baxter building right. but it's even more beautiful this time it is absolutely beautiful page Uh, We then go to their reading letters, Reed stretches over to another building to visit a sick kid in person. Then we get a big thing happening for the first time, which is that Ben gets a letter making fun of him from the Yancey Street gang, which is a recurring theme, which is very strange. And I think it's very much a second generation Jewish immigrant thing. (laughs) This whole thing of this is so working class. It's so weird the, this idea of like oh yeah there's a gang that doesn't like me and the gang is sitting down to write letters and they're writing <laughs> letters that contain various that are rizzing me or razzing me um and are saying mean things about me and then it drives ben crazy like oh these people now eventually many years later it was revealed that he used to be the leader of this gang when he grew up poor but uh that is not
1: revealed in any of these leon kirby issues and it is just the weirdest element yeah, no, I think that was a, a a John Byrne invention in the 80s, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, it was. Uh, well, it may have been from before that, but that's the first time I, I ran across that. Um, yeah, and, and my understanding is that uh, Jack Kirby grew up in poor Jewish immigrant neighborhoods, and before he discovered art, would get into trouble with gangs, you know, and, and or maybe not with gangs, but with sort of just general low level street crime, like mugging and you know, uh, getting into fights and stuff like that. And that art is what really sort of saved him. That gave him something to do and something productive that he was really good at. Um, and so I kind of have gotten the impression that essentially the Yancey street, street gang is kind of where Jack came from. Yeah, Uh, I don't know that, but I mean, that's my understanding.
0: Yeah, no, that's my understanding as well. So then uh, cut to some tourists who are looking at dolphins and then they see, oh, that's Namor swimming with the dolphins. And then Dr. Doom comes up in a sort of strange flying ship and he says, hey, I'm a bad guy. You're a bad guy. We should be bad guys together. (laughs) There is a nice panel on page seven of Namor leading Doom through the underwater world. And it is sort of, it's a nice looking panel. And then we go to Namor and this is always Kirby at his best, like showing anybody's lair. He loves lairs, <laughs> and Namor has a gorgeous lair with a throne made out of giant shells. A little spherical
1: aquarium with a jellyfish in it. A
0: spherical aquarium with a jellyfish in it, and, but then Doom
1: notices that Namor has a framed photo of Sue Storm. <laughs> <laughs> Which, and we're, we're, we're going to find out in a few pages that apparently he and sue must have exchanged glamour shots at some
0: point (laughs) i I think they are and they never explicitly say they're pen pals but clearly they're pen pals because they have exchanged (laughs) pictures at this point then doom says aren't you supposed to hate mankind you remember when they accidentally launched a missile and blew up your underground headquarters and says don't you want revenge revenge and namor says well i cannot harm the girl but i will aid you in defeating the others So then Doom shows him he has invented this neat little doohickey that will attach it to anything and then lift that thing into the air. And he says, now I just need you to go bring this to the Fantastic Four.
1: I just love the fact that when Doom is trying to get Namor on his side to go and do this, it's really, literally looks like the whole devil on the shoulder thing. Yes. Right. I mean, he's yeah. like right over his shoulder and just looks like the old stereotypical you got your angel and your demon on your shoulders. And they're trying to chalk you into it. But this is just like and it also comes across a lot like, you know, yes, let the hate flow through you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and many people have uh, made connections over the years between Dr. Doom and Darth Vader. Well,
0: of course, and Leah was a big fan of Shakespeare and it looks like Iago and Othello as they're sometimes sure. pictured. Yeah. And uh but oh, sure of course, get all
1: snooty and English majory on <laughs> us. <laughs> I, I any
0: chance I get. So then of course, Doom, as you pointed out, that before Lee Fun loved the transistors, he loved magnetism. And so Doom says magnetic force is unlimited. And when amplified, it has the strength of giants. All that power is locked into this small cylinder. So once again, we've got magnets doing something, stuff that magnets probably could not do. So the name it goes to New York City. He but it cuts to, as you were saying, Johnny is searching through Sue's bookshelves
1: and says As as kid brothers are wont to do.
0: As kid brothers are want to do. And he says, Hey, what's glistening behind this shelf of books? And it shouldn't be glistening because it looks like it's not a frame. But he pulls out what looks just like an eight by ten black and white glossy photograph of the submariner, which Sue has hidden in her bookshelf. <laughs> and she says, Torch, what are you doing? Why are you poking among these books? And he says, I saw something hidden behind them, a glossy photograph. I suppose you know the identity of the face in this photo. And she says, I do. Now give me that portrait. It belongs to me. He says, So you've gone soft on submariner, our arch enemy. Well, I'll tear this into a thousand pieces. And indeed he does light it on fire. So at this point, read. Now it's not clear to this point to which degree reed is going out with sue to what degree is she cheating on reed here with at least in her mind with her feelings towards summer Arner? or is she a free agent is she a free woman is she someone who summer Arner has free claim to but it's not quite clear reed does say i think you owe us an explanation
1: sue not is she going an explanation. St- is, sorry is she going steady or is she dating around yes is she a good uh, girl
0: <laughs> is she a good girl or a bad girl and he says i think you owe us an explanation Sue," and he says oh how can i explain how can I explain something I don't understand myself? I know the submariner is hostile to us, but then the submariner shows up, and of course,
1: Reed, bare-chested, of course... bare-thighed, in his speedos, <laughs> standing there looking all heroic.
0: And of course, Ben tries to attack him, and of course, Reed has to wrap himself around Ben, which is always what happens. And Sue tries to defend submariner. Sue is just like she she goes, she grabs him, she puts her hand on his chest. She's like, no, if some of us harm, he wouldn't have walked in among us this way, uh, which is not true, <laughs> as it turns <laughs> out. But uh, no, we, this is a question that I asked just last week of is Superman flying all the time? If you opened I thought up that a,
1: same thing when I saw this. I was like, hey, this is that thing Matt was talking about. If you open up a trap door under Superman, will he fall? Well,
0: Johnny burns out a circle in the floor under Submariner and he does not fall. I'm flying. He's flying all the time. So then suddenly the whole building takes off into the air. And seemingly, that the the bottom of the Baxter Building is just flat concrete that was just sitting on the
1: base on the street because that's that, that has work. no pipes, no <laughs> conduits, no you know. I, I guess there is no running water in the Baxter Building. <laughs> uh, or or they've got their own water reclamation plant right in the basement, or not the basement, in the first floor that you know just whatever you flush just gets cleaned up and sent right back up. I don't know. So, so then. So then uh, one of the things I want to say is on page 16, we have the picture of the Baxter building floating up into space. And we look down and see a gorgeous representation of lower Manhattan. Uh, Yes, you see lower Manhattan, Midtown Manhattan, Roosevelt Island, and a little bit of uh, Brooklyn and Queens over there on the right hand side. And, uh, you know, once again, it is very, very clear at this point that we are in New York City, although. I still have some memory of Center City being mentioned again at some point in the future. But uh, clearly, this is New York City. Yes, and a
0: gorgeous panel looking straight down New York City from the top of the Baxter building. And so then they continue to fly off into space. Dr. Doom is in a little ship. He is dragging the grabber, the building, which has been grabbed by the grabber along be- behind him. <laughs> then he gets into outer space. They realize that their own or their own plane was toppled and damaged when the building shifted. then johnny is like well i'll just go out into outer space and fly around with my flames and uh, <laughs> that doesn't work he gets to to stand in check credit he stuffs out immediately and he says my flame it burned for a moment and then suddenly snuffed out i forgot there's no oxygen in space to feed it reed has to stretch his arm out the window to grab him he pulls him back in reed tries to stretch for dr doom's ship he can't then they convince well Dr. Doom then foolishly announces, I'm going to kill all five of you. And they're like, now, do you want to help us, Submariner? And he's like, you bet I do. Now that I know Dr. Doom's going to kill me. There's series of gorgeous panels where Namor is trying to fly towards Dr. Doom's ship. He's going, go, go, go. And he's like bouncing
1: from, ast- there's an Rips asteroid, there's a, like a meteor shower, and he's like bouncing from meteor to meteor, or at least that's what the narration says, it's it's a little unclear that that's what was going on earlier, but yeah, so he's bouncing, saying go, go, go.
0: Which of course isn't how anti-gravity works, isn't how zero <laughs> gravity works, you can't exactly bounce. Um, but I remember at one point somebody was saying like, "Scotty, can you maintain the speed?" And Scotty's like, "Oh, the engines can't take any more, Captain." And he goes, "Okay, Scotty, then just turn the engines off because we'll continue going at the exact same speed we've been going. That's how space works."
1: <laughs> yes. um, well, if you want to get into how space works, then later when they're going to drop them into the sun here, it actually takes much more energy to drop something into the sun than it does to shoot them out into the outer universe. But you know, that's getting a little too a little too technical here. We're we're doing comics
0: yes so then basically namor rips doom out of a ship doom goes flying off clinging to an asteroid goes flying off into nothingness it says the rocky space wanderer streaks onward unmindful of its human writer, unmindful of the loneliness of its never-ending journey for eternity is a long long time and dr doom who has coveted all of the earth now has all of eternity to scheme in a much larger domain the universe itself so then they figure out how to land their skyscraper back on the earth, which again, because it has no pipes, it can just come (laughs) come, come to a rest like it was before. Now, to be fair, when John Byrne later redid this storyline in the eighties,
1: he did have it like the building get, ripped apart on the bottom and a bunch of dangling pipes and things like that but But on the other hand in the ant-man movie they end up shrinking a building and just being able to roll it off in a little rolling cart as though it once again had no pipes or conduits or (laughs) anything like that so it worked this way that is a building that was designed to be shrunk to be fair but (laughs) maybe they
0: then i guess so the submariner never gets back in the ship so the submariner never never gets back in the ship they then land back on the earth they find the grabber and they try to get rid of it it goes flying off again and apparently Submariner so has pulled it off. He is then out at sea. He says the sea will make a fit resting place for the works of Dr. Doom. They will lie where they can do no further harm. So shall I return to the sea, perhaps someday, when I am no longer haunted by the bitter memories of my lost people. I may return, but until then, this is where I belong, in the sea, which is my home." and so you know some are under some clarky so we're going to be a villain at the end of this issue
1: yeah so they've now clearly established him as what we would these days refer to i don't know if the term existed back then as an anti-hero he can be a villain but he has a sympathetic story that you can you can uh, believe in meanwhile and that's uh, and that's very much how he was in the 40s like he was mm-hmm. he was a dark character in the 40s yeah why well, i think he was i, th- I think he, i mean i haven't read many of the 40s books but my understanding was that he was much more on the villainous side until world war ii broke out and then basically they're like we got to have all our guys fighting the nazis so sure. then he threw in with humanity just like oh, okay no well yeah sure i'm you know got some issues with humanity but i mean the nazis let's go ahead and i'll i'll beat up on them but uh right. meanwhile we, we skipped a big uh big moment here matt what's that the first well one of the two first mentions of unstable molecules
0: Oh my gosh, I can't believe we skipped over that. Yes.
1: Yes, Yes. so when he is reading the fan letters and goes stretching over to see the kid in the hospital that's in the next skyscraper over, by happy coincidence, he then is talking to the kid, I'm getting back to the page here, he is talking to that kid and explains to him, okay, wait, here we go, He says, well, the reason my costume stretches to any length that I do is that it is woven from chemical fibers containing unstable molecules that shift in structure when I affect the change. So, uh, and that's as he's like leaning his elbows on the kid's window frame there while stretched a block or two across. But yes, this is, and I was, and I note that I'm saying one of the first uh, mentions of unstable molecules I had completely forgotten, as we are going to find out soon, that there was another mention of Unstable Molecules this same month that we're going to be yes. running into.
0: Yeah, instantly Stan realizes this is an idea whose time has come and <laughs> uh, uses it twice. I had that in my notes and then I skipped over it in my notes. Yeah. Yes, the introduction
1: of Unstable Molecules. Okay, so um, yeah, we've now uh, made sure that we know that Submariner is a complex character who might have some heroism as well as some villainy, uh, although whatever villainy he has is usually brought about because of righteous anger and bitterness and uh, whatever else that what has been hurled at him and his people, Uh, which, you know, is something that was pretty daring in the comics in the strictest part of the Comics Code Authority era. Generally, you know, bad guys must show to pay for their crimes. Like there are good guys and there are bad guys. Cops are always good guys. The the U.S. Army is always good guys. Good guys win. Bad guys lose. They pay for their crimes. They will be punished. And that's it. So the whole thing, I mean, both Hulk and Submariner here are now two characters that are just sort of like, eh, let's see if they get under a case about this. Yeah. Right? And uh, and, event- and eventually Spider-Man will go on to a similar thing in that the cops are often trying to get him because of the newspaper's writing stuff about him but we're going to get a lot of this stuff in here that it doesn't seem like such a big thing now but it really was actually kind of subversive and it's
0: not something that dc was doing when they finally did an avengers justice league crossover in the early 2000s uh written by kirk Busiek. He, he identified the big difference between the marvel and dc universes is that like the dc characters go over to the marvel universe and they're like everybody hates superheroes here like <laughs> Like there's anti superhero editorials in the paper. Like what on earth? Like we don't have anything like that. Like in in our universe, the Flash has a mu- has there is a Flash museum in the Flash's hometown where they celebrate all of his achievements. And there's nothing like that in the Marvel universe.
1: New York does not have a Spider Man museum where they celebrate the achievements of Spider Man. Actually, you said Kurt Busiek. He's the one who wrote the Marvels miniseries, isn't he? Right. Yes. Yeah, and, and he also plays on that a little bit there when he recounts the Galactus storyline. And, you know, afterwards he says, they save the Earth, any just universe, we would be carving mountains with their likeness you know this would they they literally saved all of humanity and all of our world and yet the next day there were newspaper editorials saying oh this was all just a hoax and it's all just a money-making scheme and all this kind of stuff yeah so that is a i guess a kerbusiak observation generally so uh we need to move
0: on to the incredible hulk yes is that our next one actually no hi everybody this is matt i'm gonna jump in here i'm editing this episode And I think it's gotten too long. This episode ended up being more than 90 minutes. So let's go ahead and break it up into two 50-minute episodes. Next episode, we're going to come back and we're going to do three books. See you then. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click
1: on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.